Today's passage is going to be found in Amos chapter 6. The pew Bibles in front of you, that would be page 815. Now, if the first two chapters of Amos is God painting this kind of bullseye of judgment with Israel in the crosshairs, Amos 6 is finishing it off with the dot right in the middle. We move from these sweeping proclamations of what Israel, how Israel has turned away, to a targeted personal condemnation of those who are its leaders. When we study scripture, especially passages of judgment, like Amos 6, it's really easy to focus on the sins of others rather than our own sins. Amos's woe, though, could easily be aimed at the world today. His warning about complacency is not just about the sins of people back then or about the sins of other people around me now. It's really a call to self-examination. Christ himself in Matthew 11, when he was discussing the work of John the Baptist and the prophets and the law that was prophesied, to a generation that was still unresponsive to all of that. He said, he who has ears, let him listen. So let's hear the word of the Lord and listen to it. Would you stand, please, if you're able, as we read the word of God. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people... In this first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Kalnith and see. Go from there to great Hamath. Then go down to Gath and the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? You dismiss any thought of the evil day and bring in a reign of violence. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, and dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives, and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. The Lord God has sworn by himself This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride, and I hate his citadels. So I will hand over the city and everything in it. And if there are ten men left in one house, they will die. A close relative and burner will remove his corpse from the house. He will call to someone in the inner recesses in the house, Any more with you? And that person will reply, None. Then he will say, Silence, because the Lord's name must not be invoked. For the Lord commands the large house will be smashed to pieces and the small house to rubble. Do horses gallop on cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar and say, didn't we capture Karname for ourselves by our own strength? But look, I am rising up a nation against you, house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. And they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. 
anyone here of a certain age will recognize the yellow and red logo behind me. You might also pause for a minute and try to think, when is the last time I saw that? You see, there was a time where the name Kodak was ubiquitous to photography. In fact, people around the world use the term Kodak moment to refer to any memory that you wanted to savor. This is a Kodak moment. Let's take a picture. At its peak, Kodak owned 80% of the U.S. market, 50% of the global market in film, and would bring in $16 billion a year. It was valued at $31 billion. And then in 2012, after 125 years, Kodak filed for bankruptcy. Today, it exists as a much smaller company with a market share of about $1 billion, 94% less than at its peak. So what happened to Kodak? The shortest answer, Kodak was complacent. Now, it manifested itself in lots of different ways, some obvious, some nuanced. There's no shortage of think pieces dissecting the subject. But the general consensus is that Kodak was too big to fail until it wasn't. Now, you might be thinking, well, I know what happened. Digital cameras, dummy. Case solved. See, but Kodak's downfall wasn't simply about technology passing them by. In fact, despite being the world's foremost seller of film, it was a Kodak engineer who invented the first digital camera in 1975. And it wasn't that the internet caught them by surprise with picture sharing, because in 2001, Kodak actually bought one of the leading online photo services. Their tagline was share memories, share life. We could very well, instead of Instagram, all have Kodak Graham. Hashtag Kodak moment. Kinfluencers. So why do I say it was complacent? Because Kodak misunderstood what got them to the mountaintop. See, they interpreted their success in a way that fed into their self-assurance and that was self-serving. We know what's best. We are photography. Have a digital picture? Great. Upload it to your computer and then print it out. Someone send you a digital copy of this great time you had? Awesome. Here's some Kodak photo paper. Print it out. Prints are what made Kodak, and they couldn't always see beyond that. They forgot their stated purpose and saw their current position as permanent until it wasn't. You see, your current condition is no guarantee of future success. There is no one who is too big or too powerful to be touched by the world's troubles, and it's true now, and it was true in the time of Amos as he's preaching to the people. So who are the people that Amos is chastising? Amos says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hills of Samaria, 
to the notable people and the first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to. So we find Amos, in this case, speaking to all of Israel, both kingdoms, Judah and the northern kingdom, specifically to those who hold positions of power. Zion, or Jerusalem, and Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. He's talking to the notable people. I think sometimes when we read through the Old Testament, sometimes with the prophets as well, we can think of it as dry. But if you look, there's all sorts of sarcasm that you hear in the prophet's words. The notable people. Who are these people? Well, they were the leaders. They controlled the taxes, distribution of wealth, influence over what got done. And they were relaxed and at ease and secure right where they were. Now, I think it's worth pausing for a moment right now and asking the question, what's wrong with being at ease? What's wrong with feeling secure? I mean, something has to be up because you don't woe for no reason, but those seem like good things in life. Isn't it why we work hard to provide security for those that we're responsible for, for those that we care about? What's wrong with rest? Aren't we commanded to rest? Are we supposed to live a life of just constant apprehension and toil? I get tired a lot. Have you seen the world out there? Am I not allowed to find some place that I can feel safe and not worry for two minutes about everything that's going on? Or is the message simply, life is tough, deal with it. You can rest when you're dead. Of course not. Consider Matthew 11, verse 28, where Christ tells us, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is literally inviting us to find rest in him. In him. Not in our religiosity, like Zion. Not in our own might, like Samaria but in Christ. See, the issue here was what they put their confidence in. Jerusalem was a sacred place. The temple was there. The throne of David was there. And Judah probably thought, well, we're doing what we're supposed to. It's those northerners that are building extra altars and not coming to Jerusalem and stuff like that. They felt very self-confident in their religiosity in their standing in Zion. Nothing could happen to Jerusalem because God would never allow it. So we're good. What about the northern kingdom? Samaria, the geography, was high on a hill with steep cliffs, well fortified. Combining that with the military might, they felt self-assured and trusting in their military defenses. Judah and Israel both thought they were safe in their cities. Charles Spurgeon put the difference between security in Christ and the sense of ease from complacency this way. It is the difference between the assurance of one who is on the rock and the ease of a senseless drunk whose house is tottering from its sandy foundation and yet he riots 
at full speed. So what's wrong with ease? Well, it leads to complacency. Uncritical self-satisfaction. And a complacent heart is a heart that feels neither the burden to serve others or the need for repentance. Amos continues and says, look at the cities around you. Now, these are all cities that the kingdoms had some influence or had conquered. And he says, look at them. Are you different from them? These were once independent. Now they're subjugated. Are you better than these kingdoms? Now, I don't know what someone would have been expected to answer. I mean, these are rhetorical questions, but that kind of goes over some people's heads sometimes, right? Have you ever asked a rhetorical question and someone answered it? So I got to thinking, what if there was that person out there, would it have been this, oh, no, we're not. Oh my goodness, you're right. Or maybe it would be a scoffing and prideful, yeah, of course we're better than them. If that was the case, it's very ironic that God's people, while seeing themselves as first of the nations, were constantly drawn to the cultures of those around them. See, last week, Pastor Jason pointed out that the self-indulgent way in which Israel saw the idea of a day of judgment, they were confident this was a day reserved for God's enemies. And they never thought that they might be the ones in opposition to what God called them. When you dismiss the idea of accountability for evil, either because you don't think you're wrong, or eh, it just doesn't apply to me, you invite all sorts of opportunities for wrongdoing. It's like a parent or a teacher who, by failing to correct the bad behavior of a child, legitimizes it, allowing it to continue unchecked. The leaders here have endorsed violence, extortion, abuse of the poor, and all sorts of other things that Amos has covered in the chapters previous. I think we can safely assume that both kingdoms would probably answer, how are we different, by eagerly affirming their self-importance and saying, well, we're God's people. That's, what we're, that's how we're different. Like a character in a story that has plot armor. Nothing can happen to that character because they are the story. So Amos paints this picture. What does that look like, these people living this way in verses 4 through 6? And we get this image of people sprawled out on couches, feasting on the best cuts of meat, which meat already would have been a luxury. Lamb and veal from calves that haven't even been to the pasture. They're just getting, getting fat in the stall. They're drinking wine by the bowlful. I wonder where that got them. They're making merry, reveling in their leisurely lifestyle by improvising, entertaining little ditties on musical instruments like David, implying both a sense of leisure and self-importance in the same way that David played for the king. We're also going to play for ourselves. And then literally, on top of it all, covering themselves in the best fragrances and oils and perfumes, not giving any thought to the ruin around them. 
while society crumbled around them, due in large part to their own deeds and policies. Now, there is a tendency, I think, sometimes to conflate our society today with the audience of Amos. Certainly, complacency, putting oneself above all, is rampant today as much as it was then. We can make a bingo card of the modern equivalence of what Amos lists, and the question wouldn't be, is this a winning card? It would be, how quickly can I win with it? The first five things drawn, boom, bingo. Those conservative-minded in our culture could surely take the message of Amos as a condemnation of those who try to legislate their own morality with oppressive taxes, use the money to fund their agendas, create programs that develop dependence on them, all the while living in largesse and outside of accountability. Likewise, the more liberal-minded could easily take the message of Amos as condemnation of predatory business practices, capitalism out of control, worker exploitation, the poor are oppressed and companies make record profits. But as one commentator put it, if you like the prophet Amos, then you don't understand him. See, if you think Amos is just reinforcing your own political view, destroying or canceling your opponents, and taking your side, you're probably not understanding. Amos is not simply painting a picture of society gone off the rails. He is holding a mirror up to God's chosen people. And today, that includes us in this building. There's an interesting duality in the chastisement that Amos lays out. First, he's certainly decrying this lavish lifestyle of luxury and excess without thought for the poor. This self-indulgence that comes from, springs out of the excess, the sin of self-indulgence. But there's also the sin of self-assuredness that comes from direct disobedience to God. See, as God's chosen people, Israel was called to live a life honoring God. The choicest lambs and calves that they were feasting on, those should have been on the sacrificial altar. The term for the bowls they were using to dip and drink wine by the bowlful is the same term used for the bowls that were used in the different rituals in the temple. A few months ago, I stood up here and we talked about how the first oil, the best oil, was to be used for the lamp in the tabernacle and for anointing of the priests. And here, it's being reserved for personal use. All of these things are the best that should be offered to God, but instead are part of their self-indulgence. Even the music, in referencing that we're going to play music like David, is a selfish distortion of the psalmist who composed songs for the Lord, and yet they're composing them for themselves. Disobedience bred complacency. They minimized their acknowledgement of God which led to self-assuredness and self-reliance. You see, if I am all I need, 
If my needs are the most important, then what reason do I have to be a witness to others? What good news is there to share? Certainly not good news of great joy for all the people. More like good news, it's my joy before all other people. God's intent was for Israel to be a distinct people and a nation who pointed others to God and his promised provision of a redeemer. So likewise, we are meant to point others to Christ. So the question is, are we willing to obey? Are you willing to be like Christ? To risk your life, your comfort? Are you willing to trust God with your finest and first fruits? To make giving to the Lord our first priority in our budgets, not the afterthought? Are we really willing to be set apart from the world around us? In the book of Revelation, it's made clear that there will be those among believers who are not and have instead complacent hearts. Revelations 3, we are told, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Former IMB President David Platt put it this way. This is where Christ dramatically deviates from the American dream. Yes, Jesus has promised great reward, but his reward looks much different than what we might expect. The reward of the American dream is safety, security, and success found in more comfort, better stuff, and greater prosperity. But the reward of Christ trumps all these things and beckons us to live for an eternal safety, security, and satisfaction that far outweigh everything the world has to offer. Safety is not found in the comfort of this world, but in the control of a sovereign God over this world. You see, the complacent heart asks, why me? Why should I give up my comfort? Why should I have to sacrifice? Why should I put others before me? But the compassionate heart and the repentant heart asks, who else? Who else could use comfort? Who else can I show love to? Who else can I tell about my Savior? And so I think back to my original question, is ease a bad thing? And I'm inclined to say yes. I think we should live uncomfortable Christian lives. Giving progressively more and more of ourselves to the kingdom of God until there is nothing left of me but only Christ. You see, the complacency of Israel, its self-indulgent nature, their excess and self-assurance, all coalesced into this selfish pride. They had replaced God in their lives, attributing to themselves the honor and glory that should have been his. 
The result should not have been a surprise to anyone. It was well documented. We can turn to Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord, and be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride comes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. In fact, later in this chapter, Amos exclaims, Do horses gallop on cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. The entire book of Amos is a plea to wake up. You are in a dangerous place. What are you doing? Do you run your horses on top of cliffs or rocky crags, as some translations put it? Do you try to plow there? He could just have easily said, do you put your hand in an open flame? Do you pet poisonous snakes? Do you spit into the wind? You aren't crazy when you're riding or plowing or doing any of these other things. You're obviously not a complete fool. So why are you foolish about this? What do you think will happen? The very fact that you didn't consider this shows your complacency. It won't happen to me. Or what is the expression? Rules for thee, but not for me. See, this is what complacency does. It dulls our ability to think beyond ourselves and to reflect on our own condition. It undermines our purpose. Paul reminds us, do you not know you were bought as a, at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which are belong to God. This pride and boasting is especially detestable to God, not just because it's unfaithful, but there is no nation that God has not done more for than Judah and Israel, and they've turned to idols, and perhaps the worst idol of all, the God of this age, themselves. So what about you? Is there a person or thing that has done more for you than God? God who gave his only son that you might not perish but have eternal life? So where is your obedience to him in your daily priorities? Thank you, God, for Jesus. Can I have these things, please? Is it the center of your prayer, or is it the intro and outro? How do you define yourselves to others? By your job, accomplishments, responsibilities, or by your faith and utter dependence on God? That one hits close to home for me. See, God abhors the pride of Joseph, and his judgment will come. It can pass a bit unnoticed, but if you look at that verse, he swears by his very being. As surely as God is, as surely as I am, destruction will come and will be complete from Libo Hamath to the Valley of Araba top of Israel to the bottom. Ignorance may be bliss, 
but it does not pay the bills. He who has ears, let him listen. How many of your accomplishments do you pin on your shirt rather than lay at the feet of God? Do you start your morning and lay your head down at night, putting hope and trust in the Lord? As believers, if we are to boast, there is only one thing that we're told to boast about. Jeremiah 29, this is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So what will it look like? The destruction preceded by pride. Amos paints another picture for us, and it's pretty bleak. We have this picture of destruction. A house is destroyed, and a relative comes to search the wreckage for bodies, to pull them away and burn them. Such a disaster would normally be a cause for lament. God's anger and judgment exist to get people to change their ways, to bring about repentance. A lament may be like this in Lamentations 1, verse 20. Lord, see how I am in distress. I am churning within. My heart is broken, for I have been rebellious. Outside, the sword takes the children. Inside, there is death. It is a cry of repentance. But here we see the survivors hushing. Don't even mention God. Now maybe Amos is making a point that it's too late to pray for repentance. But I think it illustrates another thing. It's a description of how complete the destruction will be, but also how sad the state that the people are in. Even still, they would rather try to hide from God for fear of his just wrath than throw themselves at his feet in repentance and change their ways. Don't let him come back. He'll get me again. So if the actions of the notable people are the symptoms of complacent hearts, then what should the actions of repentant hearts be? How do we avoid complacency? How do we avoid destruction? The prophet Micah, contemporary of Amos, but prophesying to Jerusalem, the Zion mentioned earlier, has this to say. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before the God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires, to act justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I thought Matthew Henry put it in an interesting light. He describes it as, this is their opening bid for repentance. Hey, God, we're looking for repentance. Will you take this? And it's a high price. Thousands of streams of oil, 
thousands of rams, tens of thousands of oil, thousands of rams, year-old calves, all things that in Amos they were using for themselves. But if you doubted God's mercy, look closely here. He doesn't bid them up. He doesn't leverage them. Ooh, you're that desperate. Actually, I want 20,000 streams of oil. Because guess what? God doesn't need your stuff. He wants your obedience, and he wants you. He has shown you what is good. Not just the list of do's and don'ts, because you can never do or not do enough. But it's the heart behind it. The guilt of the people in Amos reflects the guilt of the leaders. We can't depend on ourselves or anybody else. But the law shows us the heart that we're supposed to have. This is what the people missed. It's not the things that you have to do, but the heart that is transformed when you are a person who does those things. And we do have one person we can depend on, which is the Messiah, Jesus, who did justice, who loved kindness, who walked humbly with God to the point of obedience that he died on the cross. How can we do this if we rely on our own strength? We don't have to do it alone. Christ told the disciples in John 14 that I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. In the liturgical calendar, today is the day of Pentecost the day that that promise goes fulfilled and the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples. And so the question is, is your heart complacent and hardened to the comfort and guidance of the Holy Spirit? Or are you listening to the Spirit and living a life that gives glory to God?